Our Old Testament reading this morning is Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, and that's on page 586 in the Bibles we provide, and on page 152 in the Children's Bible. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is from Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. It's chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. You can find that on page 966 uh, in the Bibles we provide and on page 288 in the children's Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Morning. If you are new here, my name is Matt Avery. I'm the pastor of discipleship. John Wood has been preaching through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and so now we're, we're in the middle of that series. We're going to be talking about something today. We're going to look at this passage that puts flesh on what Jesus is saying in that sermon, and essentially what he is saying in that sermon is he is defining righteousness, and he's doing it in a way that is very different from the way that the religious leaders of the day were defining righteousness. And so let's look now at Luke chapter 5. Verses 27 through 32, page 861 in your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord to us. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Work it deeply into our hearts, Lord. Help me to believe it as I preach it. Help these people here believe it as they hear it, and change us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So I've referenced from up here before at least one time that my favorite story is the Lord of the Rings. And in the first installment of the Lord of the Rings story, Frodo, the Hobbit, it's just so dorky when you say all the names, but um, he, Gandalf the wizard is telling him about this ring and he comes into position of this ring and Frodo doesn't really understand the ring yet. He thinks it's this impersonal thing, object, uh, that people can, you either have it or you don't, and you can use it however you want to use it. And he doesn't understand that it is actually a personal, powerful force that is moving, and it moves people toward the ring, and it moves the person wearing the ring toward other people. And so it has to be destroyed, and Gandalf tries to explain to him, the ring yearns above all else to return to the hand of its master. And so Frodo, still not understanding, says, well, we'll just hide it somewhere. You and I are the only people that know it's here. We'll put it away. We'll never talk about it again, and everything will be fine. And Gandalf has to go on and explain and says, never put it on, for then the agents of the Dark Lord will be drawn to its power. And remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. And a similar misunderstanding is happening in our passage today. We're talking about righteousness, and there is a great misunderstanding about what righteousness is. Righteousness just means moral rightness or rightness with God. And so in our passage, there are three competing understandings of what righteousness is. And those three competing understandings are the same three competing understandings of what righteousness is held by the people who are in this room. And so why does this matter? Why, why do we even care? Why are we talking about righteousness and what you think about it? The reason it matters is because your understanding of righteousness will set the course of your life. So let, let's, let's get into this a little bit. So both the sinners and the Pharisees in this story, they believed something, they believed one thing that was the same about righteousness. They both believed that it was a, an impersonal standard that you were obligated to meet so that God would accept you. And so here's the difference, though, between where the immoral people take that and where the self-righteous religious people take that. The immoral people believe that meeting this standard of righteousness is impossible. So God will never be able to accept them. And maybe that's because of what they have been exposed to, things that have happened to them, or because the bed that they've made for themselves, bad choices that they've made that they have to live with. But the weight of this knowledge that God cannot accept them is crushing. It is crushing. And so what happens? When you believe this about righteousness, you will set a course to distance yourself from that reality and deaden yourself to that reality by whatever means necessary. By running from God, pursuing pleasure, pursuing distraction, entertainment, or serving some alternative standard that you've made up that has nothing to do with God. Now, the religious, the self-righteous, they go a different direction. They believe it's this impersonal moral standard that they have to keep to be acceptable to God, but they believe that they can keep it, sort of. 
they also have to deaden their hearts because somewhere deep inside, they, they know that they can't. So they come up with a very shallow, minimized version of what it means to keep this standard. And they do so to try to contractually obligate God to accept them. But the, the thing about it is, you're never safe because you have to meet that standard and then you have to remain at that standard. So there's never peace. And there's never really hope that God really could just love you. It's about whether you're obligating him to accept you or not. And the way maybe that they try to do this is to be spiritual insiders. They try to amass as much knowledge about the word of God as possible. They try to learn the ritual. They boil things down to a few things that we need to make sure we always do, a few things we need to make sure we never do, and we need to avoid the people who do those things. So again, that, that knowledge that God doesn't really love them and potentially will never accept them is also crushing. And Jesus talks about a third definition of righteousness that is very different from these two. The way that Jesus explains it, it is not some impersonal standard that you have to keep. It is a powerful living force that is active within you, that is moving you and is moving people to you or away from you. And so how do you know? How do you know whether you have this righteousness that Jesus is talking about inside of you? Well, in this passage, Jesus shows us that there are three things that that righteousness of God that is working inside of a person does. The first thing is that it will draw sinners to you. And what do I mean when I say sinners? We're kind of using that as like a technical term here in this passage. There's a, a type of person that was considered a sinner. So when it says that Matthew was, you know, he was a tax collector and Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, sinners were just the immoral people. They were morally reprehensible. There was something wrong and they really didn't care about the law of God. So this would have included prostitutes, adulterers, liars, cheats, other tax collectors. Tax collectors were employees of the Roman government. They were in government positions to collect taxes for the Roman government from their people, the Jews, in this case, because Matthew Levi was Jewish. So he was basically like an Uncle Tom for the Roman government. So he was hated by his people, uh, the religious elite called tax collectors, the scum of humanity. They were literally the example of the lowest of humanity, and the Pharisees were the example of the greatest of humanity. And so these are the people that we're talking about. And so this man... I'm going to call him Matthew. It says Levi, but he's, Matthew and Levi are the same person. When Jesus comes and invites Matthew to follow him, an amazing thing happens. This man who has a prominent position in the Roman government, who is wealthy, who is throwing parties, doing whatever he feels like, when a shabby, poor outsider, weird Jewish rabbi who nobody's really listening to comes and offers him to come into his life and to walk with him and live with him and share meals with him and learn from him. He leaves everything. He leaves everything to follow him. What would compel a man in that position to do that? 
to leave his position, to leave his income, to leave his life. It's like the ring. He wants to be found. He wants to be found. Deep down in his heart, he wants to be found by God. It's like um, my friend Larry, who is a pastor in Philadelphia, and he lives, he and his wife live in a poor neighborhood where they minister to folks, and they live in a row house, and they live a very invitational life. They invite people into their homes, they invite people over for meals, they invite people into conversations, they invite people into their very lives. And one neighbor, a woman who has been through drug addiction, homelessness, and has never wanted anything to do with God, she has been a recipient of Larry and his wife's love and hospitality. And finally, she came to Larry's wife and said this, I've never been to church and always thought I didn't believe in God, but getting to know you and your family has made me wonder if I have never really known who Jesus is. Will you meet with me and let me ask you some questions and explain some things to me? How amazing is that? I can tell you as a pastor, that is like a dream come true. I mean, that like almost never happens. <laughs> but that's amazing. Because maybe Larry and his wife were the first people that she's ever met that gave her hope that God could potentially still love her. She wants to be found. She wants to be found and she is drawn to the real righteousness of God. And so if you're here today and your life is one big attempt to distract yourself from this thought that you are unacceptable to God and there's no way that he could ever love you and you're trying to anesthetize your heart and pretend that that thought does not exist and busy yourself with everything you can think of and deaden yourself with everything you can think of, maybe because of what has been done to you or what you have chosen to do or what you have done to other people, Jesus has something to say to you And he is calling you today to hope. He is calling you to radical hope that maybe this is true. That the God of the universe, who is holy and perfect, might actually want to spend his life with you. Inviting you into his life and inviting himself into your life. So this righteousness of God draws a certain kind of person, but it's at work repelling another kind of person. And those are the Pharisees in this story. The Pharisees, again, were the religious elite. They've spent their days trying to keep a modified version of the standard that they thought would make them acceptable to God. They want to be spiritual insiders, expert at the knowledge of his word, avoiding sin, condemning sinners. They show up. They definitely were not invited to the party. You can be sure of that. Um, Pharisees are never invited to parties. And they saw Jesus and his disciples there. How did, you know, how did this happen? Basically, we, we think that there's, the party was out in some outdoor area as well. So when they were walking by, They saw what was happening. They stopped. They approached Jesus' disciples to harass them. Notice that they did not approach Jesus. 
And they were so offended. They were so offended that Jesus and his disciples were eating and drinking and identifying with sinners. So what did Jesus do? He was not intimidated. He did not apologize. He didn't change his behavior. He didn't feel the need to do much at all. But what he did do was share the gospel with them. But they do not follow him. It's like, um, unfortunately, I have a story that I wish were not true, but it is. Um, There's an RUF pastor who's a friend of mine named Michael. RUF is a campus ministry. And he is at Johnson & Wales, which is a culinary university in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he shared with me a story from his presbytery examination. So Johnson & Wales, um, because culinary school, I think maybe some other reasons, there is a larger than average population of students there who are living the gay lifestyle. And so um, this, this man who is examining Michael at his presbytery exam asked if he knew that. And he said, yes, I do. And he asked him whether he planned to meet with those students. And he said, yes, I do. I plan to meet with those students and all the other students and share the gospel with them. And so this man uh, asked how he would plan to meet with them. He said, well, I would plan to meet with them the same way that I meet with everybody else. I would eat meals with them or meet them for coffee or any other way that human beings meet to talk about things. And the man was very offended and told him that that was a very bad idea because that would give the appearance of evil. Because what if people saw them one-on-one sharing a meal or sharing a coffee and thought that they were on a date? You know, and I hope that story really bothers you as much as it bothers me. Because that is not righteousness. That is the righteousness of God repelling the self-righteous. So if you are someone who is here today and you really enjoy studying the Word of God and being known as an insider, and you also avoid sinful people and are joyless and hard and cannot confess your own sin freely, talk about other people's issues and not your own, if you're easily offended, do not regularly ask for forgiveness because there's really nothing to be forgiven for because you're living a good life, then Jesus is saying you are a modern-day Pharisee. And not only are you not holier than other people, you are really sick. And you are dangerously sick because you will not admit that you are sick. And so he shares the gospel with you, and he asks you to do something, to trust him by admitting that you are not as holy as you think you are, and come to him and find healing. Because again, maybe, just maybe, he actually does love you too. And he wants to be in your life. And he wants you to be in his life. Maybe that's true. So trust him. Trust him with your life. Because you also long to be found. 
And so the third thing that this righteousness of God does as it's pulling and pushing is it draws you toward sinners. I love this passage because I love the first thing that Matthew does when Jesus changes his life is he wants to throw a party for Jesus and invite all of his crazy messed up friends so that they can meet Jesus because he is amazing because he has given me hope for the first time. And look at what Jesus and his disciples do when they are invited by a notorious sinner to hang out with him and his friends. They show up to the party with the same mission of love and grace with which they showed up into Matthew's tax booth. They want to come to those people to share the love of Christ with them to share the love of God with them. And so how do you think he came, how do you think Jesus came into that party? Do you think he had to make some changes to the guest list first? Like if I'm gonna show up to that party, these people can't come because they're really gross. Or do you think he laid out some ground rules for acceptable behavior first? Okay, you gotta tell your friends not to do these things, only do these things. Do you think that he sat in the corner the whole time shaking his head, pointing out bad behavior? Do you think that he was offended when other people use colorful language? No, I don't think so. I think he came and he identified with them. I think he fellowshiped with them. He ate and drank with them. He ascribes dignity and worth to them. You see, the Pharisees saw them as one-dimensional Trash. Those are tax collectors. Those are sinners. Jesus and his disciples see them as human beings made in the image of God, worthy to spend your life sharing the love of Christ with them. So that's what he did. He goes into the sick places where people are sick and offers them life. And the true righteousness of God compels all of his disciples throughout the years to do the same thing. A beautiful illustration of this, some of y'all have heard this, I'm sure, but there's a man named Tony Campolo, and he's a sociologist, and he tells the story of going to speak at this conference in Hawaii. His plane lands really late at night in Honolulu, and he gets off the plane, and he is so hungry, he can't go to bed yet, so he tries to find a place that's open. All he can find is this greasy spoon diner that's serving whatever, coffee and donuts. And so he goes, and it's one in the morning, sitting at this diner. He's in there with the chef, and in walks a several ladies of the night. And they are there, and they are talking with each other, and he hears one of them say, hey, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other one says, well, what do you want me to do, throw a party or something? And she's like, no, no, I just, I just wanted to say it. And then she said, you know, She's turning 40. She said, you know, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. So he hears this, they leave, and he calls the cook over, and he says, hey, do those ladies come in here often? And he said, yeah, they're in here every night. 
He said, what was that one's name? He said her birthday was tomorrow. He said, oh, that's Agnes. He said, you know, I'm thinking maybe we should throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow. And he said, that's a great idea. And Tony said, do you mind if I decorate the place a little bit? And he said, no, you know, go right ahead. And he said, and I'm going to get her a birthday cake. And the the cook said, no, no, I'm going to get her the birthday cake. That's my thing. He's like, okay. So he gets the cook to, you know, get with some of her friends, get the word out. So the next night, they're all, the place is packed with all of her friends. And in walks Agnes, and everybody starts singing, happy birthday. And she just collapses. And she just starts weeping. She's overcome. She's never experienced anything like this. And they bring out the birthday cake, and they start to cut it up. And she said, no, 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 don't cut it up. And she said, I, I, I want to take this and show my mom. And she lived with her mom like a couple blocks down. So she leaves with the birthday cake, very emotional, and now there's this awkward moment where Tony Campolo is surrounded by prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3 a.m., and he doesn't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do, and he just said, you know what? I think we should just pray for Agnes right now. And so they prayed for Agnes, and then after that, the cook pulled him aside, and he said, hey, you weren't telling me the truth. You're some kind of preacher. He said, I'm not a preacher. I'm a Christian, though. He said, well, what kind of church do you go to? He said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. (laughs) And he says, there's no way, because I would go to a church like that. But you know what? We need to be a church like that. We need to be a church that ascribes dignity to people and projects to them the truth of the gospel, which is, we are all sick. We are all desperately in need of God's grace And so you know what? He's found us by no merit of our own, and we would love for him to find you too. And so we want to offer our lives, our homes, so that you can be our friend and meet him because here's what the righteousness of God is. It is a personal, powerful force that is at work in the people of God because it is Jesus Christ himself living in us, compelling us out into the world to continue this mission of salvation. And as our quote said on the screen before the service started, a mission of salvation cannot be achieved by staying in respectable company. The Pharisees were so offended that Jesus would darken the doorway of a building that contained that many sinners. Well, the cross is going to make their head spin. Because Jesus, in this story, walks into a room brushing up against sinners. But on the cross, Jesus takes all the sin of the world onto himself, into himself, so that it can be dealt with once and for all on the cross. Why? So that that party at Matthew's house can continue for eternity. Because Jesus wants his people to be with him for all eternity, celebrating the goodness of God, celebrating God's love for them. That's what the gospel is. So let's live like it. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning 
so thankful that this is true. Lord, we are so sick. Some of us don't want to admit it, but it's really true. It's true of all of us. We are so sick, but at the same time, we're also self-righteous. It's amazing we can be both simultaneously. And we are both of those things because it is really hard to believe the good news that the God of the universe would want to spend himself so that we could have life with him forever. But it is true, and I thank you that it's true, and I pray that you would help us to believe that every minute of every day, living in the freedom of your love for us, offering that love and that righteousness to those who are lost and hurting and in need of the love of God that transforms lives. In Jesus' name, amen.